Will you please remain standing if you're able for today's lesson from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 13. And also from Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. And now from Exodus, you shall not murder. And also from Matthew, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, my goodness, if you've been blessed this morning by this music, would you say amen? amen. I knew you felt that way. There's something. Something special this morning here, and we welcome you. Uh, I also want to add my word of greeting, Jim, to yours, to our online community, and tell you what a great joy it is to be with you in worship, and it's a real honor, uh, not only to be with you all in person, but to see those, uh, to know those who are with us, uh, who are worshiping with us from other places, and we hope you'll join us in communion uh, when we get to that point. If you have bread and juice on your table, we'll be celebrating together the grace of God, and we look forward to that. Um, the way this service began uh, with uh, Shana, uh, my goodness, I will yield my time to you if you will come and sing. Uh, that is beautiful. Somebody leaned over to me and said, is she a member of this church? And I said, she sure is, but she left us for New York or somewhere up north. Uh, and you're back today. And uh, it means a great deal just to see you. And multi-generational choir, we talked about it last week that, you know, we've got seven generations of this church. Nothing thrills me more than to come in and see strollers and walkers and wheelchairs in the same space. That is a marvelous, marvelous thing. I counted four generations in the choir this morning. We're grateful to you. And Jim, thank you for leading us and for your presence here today. It's a great joy uh, to worship with you. We're on the back nine now of this series called Written in Stone. We're studying together the Ten Commandments, and we've made it through the first five. And because of the snow days that we had this week and all that was happening, I thought that the Sixth Commandment would be a good one for us to think about today. Um, Thou shalt not murder. Um, uh, we're glad the kids are back in school, and we're glad you're back in church as well. There's been a debate in recent years uh, among Bible scholars, teachers, and theologians concerning the best translation of Exodus 20, verse 13. Most modern translations say it like this, you shall not murder. But older English translations, like our King James Version, say, thou shalt not kill. 
And so which is it? And you say, well, what does it matter? It all results in the same way in a homicide, and that's true, but there is a difference. And the difference between murder and killing is typically in intent. One involves malice, forethought. The other is inadvertent. One is deliberate, and the other is accidental. But regardless of the translation, the aim, the objective, the goal of the sixth commandment is the same. It's not just about the avoidance of taking life, it's about upholding the sacredness and sanctity of life. I've been thinking about these last few weeks, as you have, and praying about what happened in Memphis, and and it occurred to me this week, in the aftermath of the killing of Tyree Nichols, not only were the officers who beat him charged, but there were other first responders who were also penalized, not because of what they did, but because of what they didn't do. It's not enough to avoid doing harm. We are called to do good. When I think of this, of course, as a Christian in the Wesleyan tradition, I think of Wesley's three rules. They're very simple. I wish I could make them more complex for you, but they're very simple. Do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. And that third rule is key to the other two. We must stay in love with God if we're to do no harm and to do good. Pope Francis has defined our age as a throwaway culture in which food, disposable objects, and now even human beings are discarded as unnecessary and unredeemable. In fact, I read this week that we broke a record in Music City, in Nashville, Tennessee. We broke a record for the month of January. We had 17 homicides in 31 days. And that's 17 too many. I was thinking of something that the great Albert Schweitzer once said in his book, Civilization and Ethics. He said, ethics is nothing else than reverence for life. If a man or woman loses their reverence for any part of life, we will lose reverence for all of life. Now realize sometimes that we don't do very well with law. We look for the loopholes, if you're like me, and we sometimes get sideways with this sixth commandment, particularly in its application. For example, is euthanasia murder? What about suicide? What about self-defense? What about abortion? What about just war? What about capital punishment? While Exodus 20 verse 13 offers a very terse and straightforward decree, the three chapters after that, Exodus 21 through 23, contains what lawyers would call case law. That is, anecdotal situations where interpretation and judgment is needed beyond the statute, beyond the law. And you see this in Exodus 21, verse 12. Whoever strikes a person mortally shall be put to death, but if it was an accident and not premeditated, then there are appointed places to which the offender 
may flee. But it's the intent that matters. In ancient days, because there was no penal system, there was no jail, there was no prison, Deuteronomy 4 says that there were three cities of refuge that were established where offenders could flee for peace and security. But it's the intent, it's not just the action, it's the intent that matters to God. The first killing in the Bible, you know where it is? It's in Genesis chapter four, the story of Cain and Abel. It's a tale of sibling rivalry. By the way, I recently discovered the cause of sibling rivalry. Do you know what it is? Having more than one kid. (laughs) I married an only child, and if you did too, I understand. And she never understood in our first years of marriage, she never understood sibling rivalry. She never went through it. She never had to lock the bathroom door. She never had to do any of that until we had our second child, at which time my wife said, if Haley had been born first, she would have been an only. (laughs) Sibling rivalry. Adam and Eve had two boys. One was a farmer, one was a shepherd. The farmer and the shepherd in those days were not good buddies. But both of these guys seem to be intent on worshiping and honoring God. In chapter 4, Genesis verse 3, their offerings are mentioned. This is interesting. Cain brought the fruit of his produce to God and Abel brought his sheep. And the scripture says that God was pleased with Abel, but not so much with Cain. But for God, it wasn't just the offering that displeased him. What grieved God was the spirit of Cain, the disposition, the attitude. Something wasn't right with Cain. In fact, Genesis 4.4 says he was angry. And listen to this, and his countenance fell. I love that word countenance. Literally in the Hebrew, you know what it means? It means face. His face fell. In other words, Cain War, his anger. It was all over his body language. In fact, you could, you could see the anger before you could see him. It was tangible. And God confronted him. Cain, why are you so bitter? Why the long face, says one translation. If you do right, you'll be accepted. If you don't do right, sin will be lurking at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. It's interesting that phrase lurking at your door is a euphemism for temptation. The image in the writer would have been of a crouching tiger in the tall grass ready to pounce. And yet in spite of God's warning, Cain lures his sibling, his brother, into a field. They get into it and Cain slays his brother and God comes calling again. Cain, where is your brother? And Cain replies by dodging the bullet, am I, am I my brother's keeper? And God says, what have you done? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the dirt. And as always, sin has its consequences. Cain is exiled from the garden east of Eden to a place, get this, called Nod, N-O-D, which means no man's land. 
He's now a fugitive. He's a wanderer. And yet, notice, it's curious what God does. God puts a mark on Cain. And I always thought that God did that as a way to shame him for his sin, but that's not right. He put a mark on Cain in order to protect him. In fact, God said, whoever tries to harm Cain, you're going to receive sevenfold vengeance. What is God doing? Endorsing vengeance? No. He's curbing it. He's curtailing it. He's trying to stop it. He's restricting retribution. Now, you know as well as I do that sometimes in families, things get worse before they get better. And Cain, unfortunately, passes down his anger to his descendants. He has a descendant, a grandchild named Lamech, according to the scripture, who is known to exact vengeance way out of proportion to the crime. In fact, there's a little known poem about Lamech in Genesis 4:23. Here it is. Lamech speaking, I have killed a man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly I will be avenged 77-fold. He is boasting about his retaliation. He glories in it. The vengeance that God is seeking to restrain in the world is now becoming unrestrained. In fact, things get so bad, check this out by Genesis 6, that God has to hit reset and send the cloud, the rain, and he floods the earth. What emerges after the flood is a new code of justice. You know it as lex talionis, the law of retaliation. That is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It sounds archaic, but in that context, it was actually merciful. Because Lamech's way of justice is, if you hit me in the face, I'll cut your head off. It was unlimited vengeance. But lex talionis is equitable retribution. It means the punishment fits the crime. So if you shoot my eye out, I get to shoot your eye out. But no more than that. If somebody knocks out your two front teeth, you do the same to them. But no more. It ends there. It's tit for tat. It's even Stephen. And again, this was not a way to endorse vengeance, but to deter it. And while it did help temporarily, it never works long term. Because a tit for tat, even Stephen, Lex Talionis, does not sanctify life. Gandhi was right when he said, eye for an eye serves to leave the whole world blind. And so it is. When I was a teenager, some of you may remember this, if you're as old as I am, we used to play a little game called chicken. You remember this? You punch me in the arm and I get to punch you back. But you know what happens? That second lick is always harder than the first punch, which leads to another punch. And before you know it, we're having a slugfest and nobody even remembers whose turn it is. I have the image of Washington, D.C. in my mind when I think about that. <laughs> You've seen the bumper sticker, the T-shirt. I don't get mad, I get even. That's like Talionis. 
Clarence Darrow, the well-known criminal lawyer, once said, everybody is a potential murderer. I haven't killed anybody, but I frequently get satisfaction out of the obituary notices. So I think that Cain must have been on Peter's mind when Peter asked Jesus about the extent of our forgiveness. This is in Matthew 18. Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother when he sins against me? And this is so Simon Peter, he doesn't wait for Jesus to answer. He answers his own question. Seven times? What's Peter doing? He's reversing Cain's sevenfold pronouncement of vengeance. Now, most of us operate by three strikes and you're out. So Simon Peter is being particularly generous here, seven times. But Jesus goes rogue on Simon. No, not seven times, but 77 times, he says. And Jesus at this point is reversing Lamech's retribution. Lamech's vengeance is unlimited, but Jesus' grace is unlimited. It's infinite. In fact, if you're keeping score on your neighbor, you really don't understand forgiveness. In fact, there ought to be a scripture that says something like, love does not keep a record of wrongdoing. Oh, there is one. 1 Corinthians 13. Mr. Wesley came to Savannah, Georgia in 1735 with General Oglethorpe as a missionary to the Indians. The story is told that John Wesley and General Oglethorpe were one day discussing this issue of forgiveness, and the general said, I never forgive and I never forget. To which Mr. Wesley replied, in that case, sir, I hope you never sin. Jesus said it like this, if you forgive others who sin against you, your Father in heaven will forgive you. But if you do not forgive their sins, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. That's why we're gonna pray in just a minute. The Lord's Prayer, that line that says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reaffirms the sixth commandment, but then he radicalizes it. He has the audacity to say, you've heard it said in old days, you shall not murder and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you're liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you're liable to the council. If you say you fool or raka, which means numbskull, you are liable to the fire of hell. And then he says this, when you come to church, if you're offering a gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, you leave your gift at the altar and you go get it right with your sister or brother. You know what that means to me? It means that reconciliation is more important than who's right. 
It means that restored friendship and harmony is more important than who's wrong. It's not just about avoiding harm, it's about doing good. It's about reverence for life. And I've discovered the hard way that I've got to deal with my anger before it deals with me and gets projected at you. And some of us here, and present company excluded, I'm sure, some of us here too often have an ax to grind, but sometimes it's better to bury the hatchet than to grind my ax. Mark Twain said it like this, anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to the vessel in which it is poured. Calvin and Hobbes is one of my favorite cartoons. I love to read it. One day Calvin says to his tiger buddy, Hobbes, I feel bad that I called Susie names and hurt her feelings. I'm sorry I did it. And Hobbes looks at Calvin and says, well, maybe you should apologize to her. And Calvin thinks for a moment and then says, well, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. (laughs) When we seek reconciliation, we need to remember that God has a liking for the obvious solution. Anne Lamott said, forgiveness means it finally becomes unimportant that you hit back. Last word. I have a friend who died a while back whose name was Greg. He lived in Lawrenceville, Georgia. I met him in our recovery ministry. He was a mess before he found Jesus and found sobriety. Years went by and he began to work in our recovery ministry and he took a job in a place that offered sobriety to many. A few years after that, his only son was murdered. He was 20 years old. Max was 20 years old. He was going to school at Georgia State to be a counselor. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The trigger man, a year later, was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. And I tell you, during that year, my friend's grief was unfathomable, unimaginable. I remember after the trial, when justice was served, he called to tell me that the mother of the killer had called him. I need you to know, she said, how sorry I am. I need you to know that I cannot imagine your pain And then with tears, she said, I need you to know that I too am suffering for what my son has done to yours. She needed forgiveness. And I don't completely understand how, but somehow by the grace of God, my friend was able to give it. And I asked him, Greg, how on earth did you do it? And he said, Pastor, I've been forgiven too much in my life to start being unforgiving now. I've searched the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and the only kind of killing 
that I can find that Jesus ever endorses is killing people with kindness. And when you do it, you will uphold the sanctity, the sacredness of life, and life will be different, not just for the one who receives it, but for the one who gives it. May it be so in us, for Jesus' sake, amen.